Well, good morning, New Hope. You know what? It is such a blessing to study the Word of God together. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you that your food is to do the will of him who sent you. So, Jesus, as you did for your Father, may we do for you. As we read your words, Holy Spirit, illuminate our minds. Change us by the dynamic and powerful spirit that you've placed within all believers. And all God's people said, Amen. Folks, if you want to take out your outlines, it'd be a great time to do that. For the last few weeks, I've been in a series, um, looking and preparing for the series, on the first three centuries of Christianity. And the reason why I've gone back and looked at that is, I always like to look at the original and to see if this is the original Where are we now and have we drifted or what does the original really look like? The genuine masterpiece. So in 33 AD, Jesus was crucified on the cross, which is what the gospel is all about. He came, he died, and he rose again. And by the way, did you notice that we sang him in Joseph's tomb? Did you realize that? We talked about from Joseph's tomb, one of the songs. That's really important. You know why that was? Because Joseph was one of those highfalutin uh, Pharisees. He was very well known. He was rich. And his, the place where the tomb was was very well known. So when it was empty, it wasn't where was the tomb. It was very clear where his tomb was. Very obvious for anybody who wanted to try and disprove the resurrection. Rolling up to Joseph's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea, and check it out. Gone. Nobody at all, atheistic, skeptic, denies that the tomb was empty. The question is, why? That's another different, that was just by the by. So after he went back to heaven, here's the deal. There were only a handful of disciples, about 120 the Bible talks about. But within 300 years, how many years? I want you to remember that, 300 years, those 120 believers had had such an influence on the surrounding community that the entire Roman-dominated empire, even Caesar, became a Christian. No marketing machine. No Facebook. No fancy beautiful instruments. They lived and worshipped often from house to house and then it eventually got worse. Their persecution got worse and they ended up going from cave to cave in catacombs, in a graveyard with no fancy music but because of the reality of what they knew and had seen, they didn't care. Irrelevant. They just worshipped Jesus. How did it go from 120 believers to taking over the entire Roman Empire where even Caesar became a Christian? How did the church grow in an extremely hostile environment? Remember Paul. That'll give you a bit of an idea. Where he hunted people down and he killed them. He killed them for being Christians. They were that hated. So from just a few people to the dominant faith. And by the way, let's take it to now, to about 2.4 billion people. How did that happen? Interestingly, during the first 300 years, it was illegal pretty much to be a Christian. And they're under intense persecution. This is not just somebody calling you names or mocking you. This is being draped in animal skins and being savaged by wild beasts. Fed to the lions in the Colosseum if you've been there. You can go there. You can see it. It's historical fact. Or 
for some of the more acute cases, Nero would use you as a Roman candle, literally, to light his driveway for lights, if you were a Christian. And he would burn you. And you would burn because lots of oil in you. Christians were persecuted ruthlessly for 300 years, that's my point. Yet, they dominated the world. They weren't intimidated. And Acts chapter 2, if you've got your Bibles with you, is the story of the birth of the first church, the very first church, and it started on the day of Pentecost. You may have heard that term before. Now, as you read through the book of Acts, I'm going to give you a quick meta-summary of the book. I would highly encourage you to take your notes and write these things down. Otherwise, if you're anything like me, it goes in one ear and clean out the other. I'm encouraging our pastors at our staff meeting, when you do your devotionals, write things down. That's what the scripture says. And the word of the Lord came to me on such and such a day, at such and such a time, whilst I was sitting under such and such a tree, and I wrote. You notice he says that. So it's a really good thing to lock down your help your discipleship. And one last thing, some of you here are university lecturers. You know what that would feel like if some of your guys showed up to university, sat down at the desk with their fingers in the pocket and said, okay, what are you going to teach me today about calculus or about Japanese or about whatever you, or med school? You would never do that. So as diligent students, as disciples, disciples are learners and leaders are learners. So I encourage you as we go through the book of Acts, take a look today. We're going to look at the eight characteristics of real Christianity, the real thing. Now, there are a lot of people today who are claiming to be Christians. And there are things done in the name of Jesus Christ that God would say, I never said that. In fact, I'm thinking of a new series right now called I Never Said That. Things like God wouldn't give you more than you can handle. That's a whole other deal. And God would say, you've got to be kidding. I have nothing to do with that. Now, Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, I think it's about verse 21, he talks about in the last day of the judgment, there'll be many come to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do many miracles in your name? Didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? And he's going to go, this is a scary part. It's hit me for my life and it's still with me. This, that verse grabbed me 34 years ago and to this day it hurts. And he says this, I didn't even know you. They were totally deceived. That is a serious wake-up call. You're not even part of my family, he says. Matthew 7, go read it in your own time. It's about verse 21, 22, somewhere around there. Now, there are many things done in the name of Christianity in the church that Jesus goes, "Uh uh-uh, I disavow. There is a fake Christianity. We've got a fake news. We have fake Christianity too. And Jesus talked about it right there in Matthew 7. Go see it. And I don't want us to ever be in fake Christianity. And what I want to do for the next few weeks is look at the real deal, genuine, 100% authentic Christianity. What does it really mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Now, when you were born, we're about, I was going to say we're about to, one of my children were about to have a new baby. And that's just great. But all the DNA that you're ever going to get, you get when the sperm and the egg come together. That's it, no more. You don't have any more today than the moment when you were conceived. That's it. Now, as I've studied how, uh, in the New Testament, how different we are as Christians from the Christians in the first century, I'm amazed. So I want to go back and look at the eight hallmarks of what it means to be a real believer, the real thing. Here they are, straight out of the book of Acts. The first one is real Christianity has supernatural power. Supernatural power. It's not just all engineered. 
Not all still super planned. Good to be planning, but there is a supernatural dimension to this as well. It's not just in human strength. There is something of God breathed into it. They don't just talk about God. These guys experience God. And this is what makes a church different from every other organization. We have the Holy Spirit. By the way, meta-observation. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all, uh, they're all often, uh, let's start this one. Yeah, let's start those four. They all recount the miracles. You know, Blam Bartimaeus, the, you know, the centurion's daughter, the miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, the walking on the Red Sea, uh, on the sea, etc., right? They all recount the miracles, a lot of those, and what Jesus said and did. Notice what happens when Paul comes along. Not one recounting of the past, but he tells about what God's doing in the present. Much of Christianity I've seen is looking backwards to the things back then. Oh, when Jesus had a beard and sandals, and they're looking back to the dusty, dry feet back then. They're not seeing him as Paul saw him in the risen Christ. A whole When he was on earth, he was a poor shadow of, of the true representation. He was a shadow of the real God. He was in a servant form. When Paul saw him, he was in his resurrected state, his glorious state, the state he is right now. Now the point is this. When you look at Paul, he didn't spend a lot of time back there. He spent a lot of time thinking and, and living with Christ in the present. In fact, he said this. This is an unusual verse. He says, I thank God that I knew not Christ after the flesh, which was with beard and sandals, and who worked as a carpenter, but he saw him as a resurrected Christ. Big difference. Something to consider. Right. So, what makes a church different from every other organization is quite simply this. We have the Holy Spirit. Microsoft does not have the Holy Spirit. The New Zealand government doesn't. The Red Cross doesn't have the Holy Spirit. No other organization on the planet has the Holy Spirit working in and through it. Now, God has not promised his beloved Holy Spirit to help any other organization bar his church. And by the way, that's the only thing he's coming back for, the church. He's not coming back for ANZ Bank or anything else, just his church. Now, the background for the birth of the church is found in Acts 1. Here it is. Grant just touched on it. For 40 days after his crucifixion, Jesus met with his followers many times. So after Jesus rose from the dead, he hung around for 40 days and he proved in many ways that he was truly alive. After 40 days, you get the deal. One time he met with 500 people and he talked with them about the kingdom of God. And one time when he was eating a meal with them, Jesus said, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father, here's a big deal, sends you the Spirit as he promised. See, this is how it worked. We're in the Old Testament over here. In the Old Testament, when, the, when God moved, he would, his spirit, you read it, the spirit came down upon a person or down upon a building. Like when he inaugurated Solomon's temple, he came down, fire and tongues of fire and all that stuff and smoke. And then it would go. The anointing of God would come onto a prophet. He'd speak in a prophetic way and then it would go. So the point is he came to visit back then over here. He moves in to stay in the New Testament. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He comes and he comes to be inside on there. And the Old Testament was on the outside. On the New Testament, it's on the inside. On the Old Testament, it was like this. Do not steal. Stop looking at that woman. Don't envy this. 
No, 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 no. Don't, don't, don't. That's the law. Over here, under the New Testament, he changes my desire from the inside. I don't want to have another woman. I'm married to this one for 36 years. Under this one, I don't want to steal. Under this one, I don't want to. He changes the desire from the inside. It's not externally imposed. He changes the autopilot because he comes to live within. And it's his job to make us more like Jesus. Get it? Okay, let's move on. He said here, uh, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the Spirit that he promised. This has been prophesied back there. He said, I've got a mission for you, but I'm going to go back to heaven and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to live within you. From now on, I'm going to live within you. I'm not just going to be with you. So, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be, what's that power for? It's connected with something. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, until the ends of the earth. They were in Jerusalem. So he says, start witnessing where you are. At work. At IBM. At school. In your medical clinic. Wherever it may be. Then he says, go to Judea. That's like Manukau, the next area out. Then he says, go to Samaria. That's like Auckland. The country next door, with all these kinds of people, those Aussies, they need some help over there. And then he says, go to the whole world. Do the whole lot. Then he says, the Holy Spirit is going to give you power you need to do what I want you to do. God never asks you to do something, and then does not give you the power. And then for the next 10 days, how many days? 10 days. All the people do is pray and wait for God's divine timetable which is day number 50, which is Pentecost. They wait and they're praying for God's Spirit to give them the power for, uh, that they need to live the life that God wants them to live. Now here's a connection. There's a direct connection between your life with prayer and spiritual power and drive. Let me say that again. There's a direct connection between your prayer life and your spiritual drive. Much prayer, much drive. Little prayer, little drive. Much prayer, much power. Little prayer, little power. No prayer, no power. Folks, prayer is a connection point. It's the point where you get the power. Now, not long ago, and maybe you could relate to this, I rushed into my library where I keep my um, iPhone charging, and I grabbed the thing all enthusiastic, unplugged it, and furiously started to poke the buttons. I'm sure you've done that, but... Nothing is happening here. Oh, I must have forgotten to turn it on. Push the button at the top. Flat. I go, what? What's this? What have I done? Follow the cable. Duh. The other end, some kind soul in my family had unplugged the other end. And I didn't check it before putting it in. The point is, without the power, I ain't going nowhere. And I hadn't realized that I hadn't, it hadn't been plugged in at all. My point is this. You may be a Christian. And you may be pushing all kinds of buttons, but if you're not plugged into the Holy Spirit's power, you won't have the drive or the energy to fulfill his purposes for your life and keep at it. The message to the church in Revelation, all the churches there, actually that many, was to him who overcomes, to him who stays, to him who endures, to him who overcomes to the end. There are many starters in a race. There are fewer finishers. So Jesus said, wait for the supernatural power. And where does it come? It comes from prayer. And they prayed for 10 days. There was an intensity 
about that. What about prayer in your life? Do you pray with intensity for God's kingdom to come and his will be done in and through you? Or is it more around, well, um, God bless me, God bless my house, bless my job, I need more money. Uh, and by the way, whilst I'm going on holiday, would you please take care of the cat? That there's something very wrong with an orientation in prayer, friends. He is God, and we revolve around him. He is not our servant. We revolve around him. We've got to get that straight, friends. That's lordship of Jesus Christ. When my kids are like this little one, it's okay when they're babies to be completely, it's all about me. Mummy, I'm hungry. Wah, wah, wah. And they're going to let you know, right? Or I'm, I need my butt changing. Wah, wah, wah. And it's all about their needs when they're immature. It's true. But when they grow up, they take responsibility in life. And it's not all about them anymore. Isn't that right? Somebody said marriage is to make you holy. I said, no, no, that's not right. Uh, marriage is to make you happy. It's to make you holy. Marriage will rub off the sharp edges. Right? Yeah. Mikey? <laughs> Sorry, for those of you who don't know, Mikey and Cara just got married. That's why we especially congratulate them. They just come back from their honeymoon. Just to put that in context. So marriage isn't there to make you happy. Somebody sold you a bill of goods. It's called Hollywood. Marriage is there to make you holy, and when you add children to it, it's going to make you more holy. <laughs> All right. Well, serious point, though. Do you pray with intensity about God's purpose in his kingdom? Or is it, oh, I suppose I should pray? Challenging question when we see what they did in the New Testament, 10 days. It was a red letter day when God's spirit descended on the day of Pentecost. Everything had changed. The old covenant had gone and the new covenant was in. Before it was Christ, uh, well now it's Christ in you. Three miraculous signs happened. Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Here they are, one place. This is 120 people. And by the way, those of you who are coming with us to Israel next year will see the place where this was. The, 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 the location. 120. And the upper rooms were always bigger than the lower rooms, by the way. Suddenly, a, a noise like a strong blowing wind. Now, it doesn't say it was a strong blowing wind. It says like a strong blowing wind. It was a noise that sounded like a hurricane. Came from heaven and filled the whole house. Whoa! So there's this big noise going on there in the house, and nobody knows where it's coming from. Then two, they saw something... Not sure what this is, but like flames of fire. Now, it does not say there were fire. It was fire. It says they saw something like flames of fire that were separated and stood over each person. So 120 uh, people in the room, that means there were 120 of these little flame-like things hanging over each of the individual's head. Now, three, it says, then they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in different languages. By the power the Holy Spirit was giving them. Now notice there are three signs on the first day of the church. The first day. One, a noise. Sounded like a hurricane inside the building. Two, a bright flame that looked like a fire on each individual person. Three, everyone was speaking in a foreign language like German or French or Italian or whatever. Cantonese. Jesus is saying this here, friends. I... God will build my church. My church will be powerful, radical, and multicultural. 
powerful. You hear this enormous sound, radical, like flames over each other's head. I'm going to set you guys on fire. You're going to be on fire for me. You're going to be radical, and it's going to be multicultural. What's he saying here? The church is like no other organization on earth, and nothing that's ever been seen before. Look at this next verse. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, And everyone was filled with awe. Wow. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. You know the problem today? Power, that power is missing in many churches. They have the talk, but not the power. That's what the Bible says in um, 1 Corinthians 4.20. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Power to change a life. It's something that comes into your life and changes you forever. My brother, Pat, was hell-bent... Nothing. It's like my brother was sliding in a grease pole clean to hell. Imagine that. Somebody you dearly love. Totally self-destructing. And nothing you can do can stop them. Nothing. Nothing mother could do. Nothing I could do. If I could, well, we tried. Trust me. We tried for 14 years. It's a miracle he was still alive. And then somehow, God's spirit, in the middle of one of his cardiac arrests, arrested his attention. And turn them around. And today he's spoken to just under half a million high school students saying that is absolutely not the right way to go. Something that we couldn't do in the flesh. No doctor, no psychologist, no counselor could do. God's spirit did. Something charges you up. It empowers you. Now in 2019, we're going to spend more emphasis in prayer. Because I want to see more of God's power at work in and through you and through this church. Power to let go of the past. Power to fulfill God's future purpose for your life. Power to do that because you're going to need it. Power to see changes in your relationships. And power to see progress in your dreams for God. So God wants to work in and through your life with a power that surpasses your natural abilities and expectations. Second mark of real Christianity is God uses everybody's language. Everybody's language. Next verse, Acts 2.4. Then they all began to speak in different languages. So the Spirit gave each of them the power to express themselves. Now this is not talking about the valid and real gift of tongues, which is mentioned in a different place. That's You'll find in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Don't get confused there. But this particular instance, it's not. God gives the spiritual gift of tongues to some people. This is real languages just spoken of here in Acts 2, as you'll see soon. Now, if you go back and read it, the Bible says here, people heard at least 15 different languages. And its purpose was to get the all-important message of Christ, the gospel. That's a wonderful word. The gospel out to the world. It's a sign for unbelieving Israel that the Messiah had actually come and the promised spirit had been poured out as foretold in Joel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and others. In verse 5, who it says, There were religious Jews staying in Jerusalem at that time who had come from every country in the world. Oh, by the way, isn't that convenient? All these people from all around the world had happened to be there at this one point. See, God had brought them back together for the day of Pentecost when he's going to start the church. And then it says here, When they heard this noise... A large crowd gathered. And they were all excited. Because all of them heard the believers talking in their own languages. They recognized it. I understand what you are saying. And in amazement and wonder, they exclaimed, these people who are talking like 
like this, are just Galileans. In other words, they shouldn't even know how to speak our language. These Jews should be speaking Hebrew. How is it then that all of us hear them speaking our own native languages, the Bible says, verse 11. All of us hear them speaking in our language about what were they talking about? The great things God has done. They were glorifying God. Then the purpose of this multicultural miracle of communication was simply this. To share the gospel. God is saying at the very get-go of this New Testament birth of the church, on the first day, this good news is for everybody, not just the Jews. It's for red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. It's amazing grace for every race. I love that. In heaven, there'll be every tribe, nation, and tongue. Amazing grace for every race. And it's God's way of getting the message of Christ's reconciliation to all of the world. It was also the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So no matter what race, nationality, language, God wants to speak to you. Question, are you listening for his voice? Because he's wanted to talk to you. And God says real Christianity uses everyday language to reach people with the good news, not self-help. Number three, real Christianity uses everybody's gifts. It uses everybody's gifts because we've all got them. Now, in the early church, friends, I have absolutely noticed this as I've been studying it, there were no spectators, none. No spectators in the early church, only participators. People who were involved. They had skin in the game. There were no consumer Christians in the early church. Jesus dispatched them. In fact, he was there sometimes and he'd be teaching them. And then people go, whoa, Jesus, that is pretty harsh. That's hard for us to follow. And they walked off. Guess what? Jesus didn't chase them. They have to make a choice. And you have to make a choice too. There were no consumer Christians who came to church, listened and went home and did absolutely nothing about it. None of those. They didn't exist. Everybody was a contributor. There was 100% participation. Every age group, every race, both genders, male and female, at all stages of life, young and old. It was multicultural, multi-generational, and everybody was involved. That's a characteristic. We're going to see that right now. Verse 14. Then Peter, the apostle, stood up, and he started to explain to them what's going on. All these people have um, been seen speaking in languages they didn't understand an hour before. And then they've got these little flames over their heads and they hear this loud noise. Here he goes. He says, Peter stood up and said, These people are not drunk, as you might suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. It's actually quite humorous, really, because you know, what he's saying is the bars aren't open yet, guys. <laughs> now, they may be acting in strange ways that don't seem normal, but they're not drunk, he's saying. This is a mark of the Holy Spirit here, and this indication that they can speak in other languages. And it's supernatural. God says, I will pour my Spirit out on everyone. You may want to circle that word. It's very inclusive there. And he explains, your sons, notice this, male and female, your sons and daughters will proclaim my message. 
In other words, everyone's going to share the gospel. That What is the gospel? That Christ died and you rose again. He died for my sins and you rose again. And your young men, here's the young guys. The young men, young, and your old men will have dreams. Yes, even my servants. Both men and women. There we go again. Both sexes. Notice, by the way, there were two. And I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will all, circle all, proclaim my message. Do you see the focus, the constant theme through this? Everybody is a messenger. You are tomorrow morning a missionary in the marketplace, Mr. Jacques. You are a, a missionary in the marketplace. Everybody's a minister. <clears throat> And it says, and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In that, those verses, what do you circle? Sons and daughters, young and old, men and women. The question is, I was thinking about, who does that exclude? Martians, maybe? <laughs> but apart from that, it's everybody. It's all inclusive. You're never too old or too young to be used by God. That's my point. You're never too old or too young. To tell the gospel and share it for his glory. You friends have gifts and abilities. Talents that God put in you to be used. Why? To build his church up. That's why he's given them to you. And to share the good news. And he wants to mobilize every person of every age, age group, men and women. Every member is a minister. Friends, this might shock you, but your kids are ministers. Your spouse is a minister. You're a minister. Not everybody's a pastor, but the Bible says God calls everybody to minister. This is how they grew from 120 people to dominating the Roman Empire in 300 years just because of a little group. Because everybody was involved and everybody was included. And God willing, for dear Lord willing, we're going to mobilize every age in this church in the next 10 years. Now, with that in mind, and as somebody who loves you, I want to say something to you this. If you just want to passively sit around and not grow and waste your life on things, give, give first-class allegiance to second-class causes, this is absolutely the wrong church for you to be in. Go find another place where you can sit and consume. You'll be uncomfortable here because you'll find the Holy Spirit from time to time will, in a good sense, provoke you and disturb you in a good sense, towards his kingdom. So I just want to say that some of you may not feel quite comfortable. Because if you're in this church, I'm going to tell you, you're going to hear the message over and over again, God wants you to be mobilized, to be a participator, not a spectator. To be part of an army, not part of an audience. On the other hand, if you want your life to count for the purpose which God created you, you're in the right place. Because you will have the word of God placed before you and the Holy Spirit will convict you because God wants to mobilize you and to use your God gifts, given gifts and talents to move his church forward. Number four, real Christianity not only has supernatural power, uses everybody's language and everybody's gifts, but it offers life-changing truth. Life-changing truth. All truth is God's truth. Real Christianity offers life-changing truth, and that is truth that transforms. 
You may want to write that down. Truth that transforms. It changes. It's got power to change. We don't offer in this church, and neither did Jesus, polite moralisms or inspirations or self-help. That's not what we're about. You get you get pay Tony Robbins for that. We offer the gospel. Why? Because it's God's word, and that is the only thing that changes you long term. The Bible says, because Jesus is saying, it's the truth that sets you free. And only his truth will set you free. Many will claim to have the truth, but they will lead you into bondage. Jesus Christ will lead you into freedom. And until you know the truth about God, the truth about life, why you are here. Why am I here? Get married, have babies, work, retire and die. Really? That's pretty shallow. Gets old pretty quick. Until you know the truth about what really matters in life, you'll be enslaved to other people's expectations. You'll be a slave to other people's approval, to peer pressure, to habits and addictions and all kinds of things. But Jesus is the truth that will set you free. The early church offered the truth of God, which you cannot get anywhere else on the planet. It's unique. It's a transforming truth. And no other organizational group has a truth that says because of Jesus' death on the cross for your sins and his resurrection, your past can be forgiven, you'll have a purpose for living, and you'll have a guaranteed home in heaven. Where else are you going to get that? Nowhere. No other message changes lives like the good news of the gospel. Peter in Acts 2. On the first day of the first church, he gives the very first sermon. There's a lot of firsts there. One, one, one. Here it is. Peter addresses the crowd. He says this. Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. This, what you're seeing, he's saying here, is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth below, and everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, Joel was a prophet in the Old Testament. It's a very, very short book, three chapters. You can read it this afternoon in about seven minutes. Very short. And Joel had predicted hundreds of years earlier what was going to happen on the day of Pentecost when God was going to send his Holy Spirit as the church began. And Peter shares the core of the gospel in his message. What is the gospel? Say, for example, you're at work tomorrow. And somebody said to you, what is the gospel? Can you give it to me? Can you give it to me? What is the gospel? You talk about the gospel all the time. What is the gospel? If you couldn't quite enunciate or clearly portray that, I want to give you a couple of thoughts on that one. Let me summarize verse 22 through 40 for you. I'll make it real easy. Eight parts to it. Very quickly summarizing. And where I'm taking this from is chapter 20, uh, verse 22 through verse 40. Here's what it says. Firstly, the first thing I see in verse 22 is that the good news is Jesus is God. And all the miracles did, uh, he did proved it. That's the good news that God has come to work to show us what he's like. The Bible says Christ is the exact representation of God. Two. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You cannot have the gospel without this. Some people don't like that word sin. It's gone out of vogue. But that's good news because he died for my sins. Verse, and that's in verse 23. Three, God raised him back to life. You'll see that in verse 24 through 32. He didn't stay dead. No body. That's the good news. 
4. This gives us gladness. It gives us joy. It gives us hope. And that's good news. Verse 26. Number 5. He's gone back to heaven. He sent his spirit from heaven. 33 through 35. 6. We must repent and turn from our ways and be baptized. You'll see that in verse 36 through 38. 7. Then we're going to be given God's Holy Spirit and he's going to live in us. Verse 38b through 39. And 8. Then we'll have the power to live differently from the world in the world. We're to be in the world but not of the world. What that really means, friends, is we're given the gift of life but we're not to live like the world, chasing after the things they chase after. In the Old Testament, it was chasing after the gods that the other heathen Nathans, nations, chased. I've got got a son called Nathan. (laughs) He must be at the top of my head. It's not like the heathen gods, like the the other heathen nations used to chase after. He said, you need to be different. You need to be different. Your life needs to be chasing, spending energy and time and your life chasing the things that I put you here for, not those things that the rest of the world is. No wonder it's good news. No wonder it's a gospel. This is the message of God's church. Notice how God used his spirit and his word as they taught the good news. Acts 2.41. Those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to the number that day. Now some of you in this room haven't been baptized. And today is a day where I want to challenge you. You should be baptized. Like Jesus said. Repent, turn from your sin, and be baptized. If you want to be baptized, let me know about that in the back of your communication card and we'll be in touch with you and figure out a good date to do that. So the church focused on the core gospel on the first day. And churches that focus on the gospel, on God's mission, are the ones that are faithful to his purpose. The gospel. And the point of real Christianity is it's firmly based on the Bible. Because truth never changes. Opinions do. It's not based on popular current opinion. It's based, real Christianity, on God's word. It says here, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What was that? What is the apostles' teaching? It's the Bible. The New Testament, the part of it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Romans. It was written by the apostles. Paul and Peter and Matthew and Mark and John and Luke. And it's written by those who wrote down the word of God as we have it today. So this year, we're going to take you deeper into God's word. God's word. So real Christianity is this. It has supernatural prayer springing from prayer. And by the way, prayer is not a way to twist God's arm. That's the Old Testament way of looking at that. You don't have to twist God's arm. In fact, when Peter had a real problem, how many times did he pray? Three, and that's it. It's the prayer of faith, not the prayer of repetition, not the prayer of many words. It's the prayer of faith that availeth much. Second, real Christianity uses everybody's language. So when you're at work tomorrow, please don't change language into Christianese. Forget the these, thous, hallelujahs, praise Jesus. Leave those out. Speak in salesies. Well, speak in teacheries, normal language that your audience will understand. Leave all the trinkets out of our language, which can often be set as an end of progress. Third, it uses everybody's gift, real Christianity. It's not a spectator-participator deal. Everybody's participator. And fourth, it offers life-changing truth of Jesus Christ. 
Nowhere else can you get that. Now, some time ago, I shared this outline and the one next week with a friend of mine. And I asked him, this man, he had a horrendous background. You're going to see him in a second. He's totally blind. Now, you and I could say, well, what can I do? I'm blind. How can I use my gifts? Well, this is what he did. He took this outline and he turned this. I want you to be careful because he wrote this song for you. I'm Ken Miedema. I've been writing songs for over 40 years, but when your pastor asked me to write a song for this Sunday's sermon, I was really, really excited. And uh, you're going to hear the song in just a minute. I want to say to you at New Hope, I wish God's blessing for you. I wish for you revival and renewal, new exciting life. And I wish for you to go places that you never dared to go before. Here's how the song goes. I want to see the real thing. I want to see the big deal. I want to see the God life that can turn this world around. Enjoy the song. Enjoy the sermon. Enjoy your new life in Christ. Church 
Who dares to speak the true word? No compromise, no clever lies, no dumbing down. I want to see a church who will speak the truth to everyone. The rich, the poor, the low, the high, and kings with thrones and crowns. I want to see a church where people join me in my struggle. I want to see a church where people love me through my pain. I want to see a church where people know my name, my face, my need. Where I can fall and be brought to my feet again. I want to see a church where people sing and dance and shout for joy. Souls alive with grateful praise for all that God has done. I want to see a church where every moment sings with gratitude for life and love and light that shines much brighter than the sun. I want to see the real thing. I want to see the big deal. I want to see the God life that can turn this world around. I want to feel the spirit. I want to hear the music. I want to feel the earthquake that can break the barriers down. I don't want to see another institution. Platitudes and promises and pretty songs to sing. What I want to see is a Jesus revolution. What I want to see is a real see a church who's dressed in generosity where giving is delight and people rush to sacrifice I want to see a church where no one ever goes without no matter how much love costs people gladly pay the price I want to see a church where the place is bursting at the seams Miracles are happening, it's where people want to be. I want to see a church where the numbers grow by leaps and bounds. People coming like a flood, coming in to be set free. I want to see the real thing, I want to see the big deal. I want to see the God life that can turn this world around. I want to feel the spirit. I want to hear the music. I want to feel the earthquake that can break the barriers down. I don't want to see another institution with attitudes and promises and pretty songs to sing. What I want to see is a Jesus revolution. What I want to see is the real
want to see the big deal I want to see the God life that can turn the world around powerful words move me to tears last night actually as I was it's so easy to be distracted with the trinkets and the second class causes that this world can offer us and I know this Jesus would not want us to ever trade and swap price tags let's pray Father thank you so much for the promise of the Father the indwelling of your Holy Spirit that has come to dwell in us like the 120 at the very beginning of the church Your Holy Spirit, Father, gives us supernatural power to take this life-changing message of your gospel to the ends of the earth, to work tomorrow. Give us boldness, Lord. Help us share, Lord, with gentleness and respect, but also with courage. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to recognize the wonderful gift that you gave us and the crucial mission that we have been given from you. Help us not be distracted, sidetracked, and sidelined. As for us, Lord, we want to serve you and we want to end well. Help us do what we do here with joy and gratitude. From this day, Lord... May we live differently as real Christians representing real Christianity. I ask you, Father, to move each one of us forward to do our individual part to fulfill your mission in your church and in this your world. Father, I pray for a blessing on each person here. In the name of the Father, the one and only matchless Son of God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit.